You're listening to the Scotiabank Market Points Podcast. I'm your host, Greg White. Market Points is part of the Knowledge Capital series, a collection of audio, video, and written commentary from Scotiabank Global Banking and Markets leaders designed to provide you with timely insights and analysis. Joe Biden was introduced as the president-elect of the United States this past weekend after major media outlets, as is customary, called the election in his favor. Unsurprisingly, President Trump has failed to concede to date and has continued to push his team to pursue legal action in the hopes of overturning the results, with the general consensus that these efforts will be in vain. The markets agreed, pushing forward as a Biden presidency became more likely. And then on Monday morning, they moved strongly on the news that Pfizer is showing promising results for its COVID-19 vaccine. On this episode of Market Points, Scotiabank Senior Vice President and Chief Economist Jean-Francois Perrault joins us to discuss his perspective on the economic impacts of a Biden administration. Hi, Jean-Francois. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Brad. Pleasure to be here. So, lots of big news uh, over the weekend. Joe Biden, the presumptive president-elect, and then uh, just this morning, Pfizer coming out uh, and announcing that it looks like they've got um, positive results uh, for a vaccine. And uh, these two things uh, put together uh, happening, one, I mean, both of them quite global in scope. Mm-hmm. What, is, uh, what is the impact, um, I guess, from the Canadian perspective um, with this new potential Biden presidency and, of course, um, this, the solution for the virus? Well, it's, it's, I mean, you're talking about multi, multi-layered impacts, right? On, on the face of it, uh, a Biden victory is um, positive in the sense that it reduces uncertainty. So one of the one of the key hallmarks, if you will, of the Trump presidency has been to create a tremendous amount of uncertainty in economic policy making, and in particular on trade policy. And of course, that's mattered tremendously for Canada, right? I mean, the U.S. is by far our largest trading partner, and we've had uh, we've had challenges with with the Trump administration. I mean, there's no there's no denying that. You know, steel and aluminum tariffs, we consider a national security risk, um, and that is almost certainly to go away under 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 Biden. So, from an immediate perspective, there's this kind of likely benefit of more normal trading relationships with the U.S. Uh, from a Canadian perspective, but more broadly, um, you know, we're also likely to see a little bit of that at the global level. So a much more constructive approach, much more collaborative approach, approach than the Trump administration has chosen to, to pursue. And that, um, you know, has the potential, again, to lower kind of global uncertainty and, and, and probably raise, raise, to some extent, um, you know, trade flows and, 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 and investment flows across, across a range of countries. So, um, you know, that's, that has the potential to be to, to to be positive. There's no there's there's no denying that. And of course, when you're layering on top of that, um, you know the fact that uh, President elect Biden had a platform of you know pretty aggressive platform in terms of various types of things that he wanted to achieve, whether it's on the economic front, the climate change front, the social front. Um, you know, just focusing on his economic platform. You know, if he's able to achieve some of what he wants to achieve. Uh, you're looking at probably a substantially stronger U.S. economy in the short run, assuming the Republicans allow him to do uh, go down that path, which is which is a big assumption, probably unlikely. Uh, and of course, if the U.S. Uh, does things to um, elevate itself, you know, again, we are so tightly linked to them that it, that it necessarily means that Canada Canada is better in that world. 
Um, now, uh, of course, this is all occurring. Uh, there was uncertainty about whether or not, uh, there still is a bit of uncertainty as to whether or not President-elect Biden becomes president. I mean, the, the, the Trump administration is fighting that pretty aggressively in the courts, so we'll, we'll see. Um, but the, the, you know, we're, we're uh, this is occurring in an environment where, for instance, in the U.S. and in Europe, and to a lesser degree in Canada, uh, you know, COVID is exploding. Um, you know, 100, 125,000 cases a day in the U.S. It's on a pretty strong upward path, so it's likely to increase as we go forward. Um, that, you know, that's a key economic challenge facing the U.S. economy and therefore the global economy, and of course, Canada in that context. So the news today that Pfizer's got a vaccine that seems to be you know, quite effective in terms of um, protecting individuals from the virus is fantastically positive. Um, and we've seen, I mean, we've seen so far this morning a pretty positive reaction from markets. We'll see how, the, how long that lasts. But that has a potential to be um, as significant, if you will, uh, a driver of economic recovery than than the Biden platform or his ability or inability to 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 move that. I mean, as I said, the reality is that um, viruses is, is a clear and present danger to the lives and livelihoods of uh, Canadians, Americans, Europeans, and uh, any indication that we are nearing a medical solution or medical alternative to dealing with the virus as opposed to shutting things down has a potential, I think, to significantly alter uh, sentiment. Um, whether or not the vaccine is widely available until the middle of next year, end of next year, is somewhat somewhat irrelevant in that context. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're, you know, from a Canadian perspective, generally speaking, um, you know, the last three four days have been have been pretty good. Um, if we can, if we can stay on stay on the right track. I think that um, the comment about the timing of uh, when it may be a vaccine may be publicly available is an important one, especially if it goes out for a year and then maybe if Biden has this ability to, um, in, uh, you know, sort of lead the country, have individuals across um, across America wearing masks, for instance, mm-hmm. makes it easier to keep the economy open. If people see the light at the end of the tunnel, maybe they're more willing to do it because they see it as a as a temporary. Um, a temporary measure, but still, I guess in the short term, there is a, a potential still dealing with this through 2021. Yeah, there's no, I mean, there's no question. Like, this is going to get a lot worse, right? I mean, I don't want to be overly pessimistic here, but, you know, all you need to do is look at the trends in the U.S., and it's very, very clear um, that, you know, the picture painted by the virus, which, as you know, is up to a couple of weeks old, depending on how the testing goes, um, is, is, is pretty worrisome. And a vaccine is not going to change that in the short run. A vaccine obviously, um, you know, leads us to be much more optimistic about, you know, sometime later in 2021 and 2022. Uh, but like they are dealing with a very, very, very substantial public health issue. Um, now, President Biden, I think, has made it, or President-elect Biden, I should say, has made it very clear that he is going to be dealing with this in uh, a very different fashion than than President Trump, so leading by example. Um, but again, the reality in the U.S., which is a little bit different than other countries, is that the federal government has, um, you know, relatively little ability, other than leading by example, to influence, um, you know, public health decisions taken by states and local governments. So, as uh, you know, as, as you've indicated, we're we're probably going to be in a world of 
And despite this awesome news on the vi- on the on the vaccine side, uh, some pretty scary news on the virus side as it progresses through the U.S. for for a few weeks, if not a few months, still. If we look a little bit longer term, then, um, and uh, let's uh, assume we can see past the coronavirus here, what will that mean for uh, U.S. immigration once? A global movement of people gets back to back gets back to normal, and I guess I'm specifically thinking about the Canadian perspective. I feel that over the last four years, um, individuals that may have looked to move elsewhere have kind of not considered the United States, and Canada has been the beneficiary of that. Uh, now that we have Biden entering the White House. Uh, does that mean uh, highly skilled immigrants from around the world are going to start considering the United States again, and that might have a negative impact on Canadian labor? I mean, of course, there's that, there's that possibility. Um, we have in Canada benefited tremendously from immigration over the last three, four years. Uh, it's been an extremely powerful driver of growth. I mean, we've coined the term human stimulus to Scotiabank to describe the positive effects of immigration. And there's also no question that we've benefited from you know, the Americans essentially pulling themselves out of the global immigration market. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's hurt. We would argue it's hurt the Americans and, and, and benefited us in some extent. Um, but, the, you know, the reality is that question hinges on, um, you know, it hinges on the nature of the damage that the Trump administration has um, caused on, say, America's reputation as, uh, you know, a diverse and accepting society of immigrants. Historically, that has absolutely been the case in the U.S. Trump has clearly shaken things, shaken things up there. Um, but it also begs the question of, you know, how, um, you know, what are the lasting impacts of Trumpism? I mean, the reality is, as as you well know, is, is you know, Trump uh, got almost fifty percent of the vote. So there are, you know, roughly fifty percent of Americans who who still buy into. Um, the main elements of Trump's way of thinking. Uh, and of course, one of those elements is, uh, you know, some hesitancy to uh, accept immigrants, certainly to the extent that, that the U.S. historically has. So, you know, it's going to, I think it's going to take a little bit of time in order for, um, you know, Biden and the U.S. to prove that they are going back to, um, you know, the acceptance of immigrants that they historically have had. I don't know that folks are going to necessarily want to accept that right off the bat, given the fact that, as I said, you know, there still are close to the majority of Americans, uh, close to half of Americans who probably, um, you know, still have some pretty strong views, negative views on immigration. How do you think the impact will be with respect to a Biden presidency, I guess, both from an immigration standpoint, but also maybe more importantly, an economic one? Uh, for Latin America from their domestic perspective? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the, very simple, the very simple way to think about it is a strong U.S. means, generally speaking, means a strong global economy. And of course, those countries that are most closely associated with the U.S. are, are, are stronger than, than, than others. And that's certainly true for Canada. It's absolutely true for Mexico. And it's true for a large number of Latin American economies. Um, it's also true indirectly in the sense that, again, depending on what Biden manages to achieve, you know, some key elements of his platform 
uh, involved a large, you know, fairly aggressive infrastructure plan, you know, pretty significant spending on the U.S. economy. And that has a potential, obviously, to raise international commodity prices. I mean, we've seen oil prices trend up a little bit over the last couple of weeks in anticipation of of a Biden presidency. Obviously, we're seeing that spike even more just this morning because of the, uh, the vaccine. Uh, but the global environment should be, watching, should be one in which commodity prices are generally higher under Biden presidency. And that in and of itself is, is unambiguously positive for Latin America and for other commodity producing countries. At the same time, again, um, you know, we do have uh, one of, I think that one of the characteristics of a Biden administration relative to Trump administration is going to be um, you know, greater respect, I think, or for the rules of the game, right? So you sign a deal with a country and you don't renege on it uh, shortly afterwards or you don't add various things that weren't part of the deal, which has been a hallmark of the Trump, you know, Trump approach to trade. So to the extent that we also go back to a world where there's more normalcy in trading relationships, that agreements are, um, you know, uh, collaboratively implemented, that um, there isn't a sense or a worry that, uh, you know, you might run afoul of the president uh, in one week and then find yourself subject of sanctions and subject of restrictions on, on your ability to do things. Again, that all speaks very, very well to, to uh, the global economy and, of course, particularly Latin America, given how integrated uh, we all are, you know, I guess we're including Canada in that, with the U.S. So, it's it's pretty hard to see how this isn't unambiguously positive for Latin America as well. Sticking with the theme then of uh, fair play in global trade, how do you think things are going to play out with U.S.-China relations? So this is going to be a trickier one. Um, so one of the, obviously one of the focuses of the Trump administration had been to rebalance trade with China. Um, but it did so in, in uh, basically by pushing other commercial trading partners away. So it was basically the U.S. versus China, uh, whereas previous governments in, in the U.S., both Republican and Democratic, had sought to build coalitions to try and influence Chinese tr trade policy and influence Chinese policies. Um, so that's likely to be how the Biden administration approaches it, right? That there is greater strength in confronting China and getting um, China to play by kind of the international rules of the game on the trading side and on the protection of intellectual property and a range of things, if you have a broad coalition of uh, countries arguing for the same thing rather than, um, you know, the American approach, which has been, you know, we're going to try and get these things out of the Chinese and, you know, we don't care what the Europeans or the Canadians or other countries think about this. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the first things, uh, President Trump did when he took power was to uh, walk away from the CTPP, so this trade agreement, this Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement that had been designed in part uh, to force China to play by the rules of the game in in, in the Asia-Pacific uh, economies, and then, as I said, you know, the Trump administration walked away from that right away. Um, so we do, we do think at the end of the day there will be um, a more impactful influence or an ability to have a more impactful influence on Chinese policy with the Biden administration and the coalition that they will build. Uh, and that ultimately, I think, will uh, improve uh, on a sustainable basis the relationship between China and the U.S. and the rest of the world. And, and again, hopefully benefit, uh, benefit the global economy. Because as you know, one of the key uncertainties of the Trump administration or the Trump period had been you know, this, this ongoing 
fear that the China-U.S. trade conflict would would get out of hand and you know represented this constant downside risk to the global the global recovery and global expansion. I think I think it's likely to be the case that those risks are significantly significantly lowered in uh, with the Biden administration. Do you think uh, a Biden administration sort of gets to play good cop bad cop here, where um, you know they leave some of the protectionist measures? Uh, in place at least temporarily as a as a bargaining chip, and is this a way that the that the Biden administration could work with, let's say, Republicans in Congress? I think so. Uh, you know that in, in a way you can think of that as one of the gifts of Trump's legacy that he's he's put in place a range of protectionist policies um, that can be used as bargaining chips to achieve various various outcomes, either with respect to China or other countries as well. And you know, Democrats historically have been have been more protectionist than Republicans have, right? Like you know, Trump's perspective on trade is very much at odds with the historical Republican perspective on trade, much more closely aligned to the Democratic perspective on trade. Um, now, the Democratic perspective on change is changing as a result of Trump, because uh, it can't be seen to be thinking the same thing. Um, but you know, I do I do think there is an opportunity here to unwind some of these things in a way that uh, ultimately will lead to better trade outcomes around the world. Or certainly more pol- more certainly on the trade policy side, which which is which is which is critical. It's an interesting uh, point about that sort of flip flopping of what appears on a given U.S. party's uh, political platform. One of the things that's constantly on the Republican side is a pushback against progressive sort of mm-hmm. social um, uh, action. And you had mentioned earlier about the 70 million plus votes that Trump got. I would imagine that a, a good portion of that is probably individuals that may not support the man, but are just um, so against let's say this quote unquote socialism that's coming from the from the left that's that's the line they they voted on um do you actually foresee uh, more progressive policy getting pushed forward in the next 4 years and if so what would, what the, might that mean for the US economy um so there's an interesting there's an interesting electoral result in the US in Florida uh, which which speaks to this question to some extent. Um, so you had, you know, the Republicans are, you know, the, the party of the free market, you know, non-intervention, laissez-faire economics, and all the supply-side economics, and all this kind of stuff. Um, the the in Florida, which obviously chose to re-elect uh, pres- President Trump, and and uh, to to I guess. And that obviously not going to happen, but um, there was a referendum at, put in place in Florida as well, which sought to increase the minimum wage very significantly um, from $8 something to $15. And that passed with overwhelming majority. So, you know, it's, 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 it's this very sharp contrast between, you know, uh, Floridians voting for the, the man and what he represents, uh, you know, for social reasons religious reasons, ethnic reasons, whatever it might be, um, yet uh, were, you know, voted for, you know, really quite progressive labor market policies. So I think that speaks to um, some of the changes that are going on in the U.S. with respect to 
you know, income inequality, the, the, the tensions that were laid bare by COVID and the, you know, the, the, the kind of the displaced workers and folks that were particularly harmed. Um, obviously, you know, the, the, the challenge that the Republicans and Democrats have had over the last few weeks to agree to a stimulus package to, to help workers and help independent firms. Um, I think that, I, I think we're seeing the beginning of a, a bit of a greater openness to um, more progressive economic ideas um, being rolled out by the next administration, in contrast to uh, you know I think much more much more firmly held views on along the social dimension, right? And uh, I think that does provide a bit of openness for the Biden administration uh, to move forward on things that would not have been considered likely six months ago, eight months ago. Um, you know, for instance, minimum wage and active labor market policies and, and those kinds of things. Um, but that, you know, his ability to do anything substantial on that front will ultimately be determined by what the Senate decides to allow him to do. And um, and it could very well be that we are in a space where the Senate will run, uh, you know, pretty hard defense against the uh, Biden administration and, and prevent a lot of uh, the more progressive aspects of his social, of his economic policies and social policies, um, just given, you know, the Republican dogma, even if it, it contrasts to some extent with, um, you know, the kind of the, the, the revealed preference of some, uh, some U.S. voters uh, in a place like Florida. Big part of that progressive agenda uh, has been the Green New Deal. Uh, what does a Biden presidency mean for the green economy uh, globally? It's likely to be a catalyst for some change. Um, now, the, the 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 president through executive action has an ability to um, have a pretty significant impact on the regulatory uh, environment in the U.S. So we expect him to, um, you know, roll back a lot of the the the, the Trump initiatives on you know methane and on you know drilling on federal lands and those kinds of things uh, but again um, you know to, to undertake real substantive change you know change laws uh, you know put in place some central structures to, to, to transition from one kind of type of energy to another that requires it requires legislative it requires legislative uh, approval and that that is that is going to be difficult. But without any question, though, we are going to be seeing a much more, um, uh, much more positive conversation coming out of the administration with respect to green technologies, green environment, uh, climate change than we've seen in uh, certainly the last four years, and maybe even beyond that. So it's not it's not likely to be the game changer that that there was an expectation of, given the fact that the Senate remains Republican. Um, but I absolutely uh, anticipate that we will have. Um, almost certainly much more, um, you know, green finance, green action in a Biden administration with, of course, implications to the rest of the world than, than would have been the case otherwise. That was Jean-Francois Perrault, Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at Scotiabank. You can now find Scotiabank's Market Points on Apple Podcasts. Don't miss an opportunity to hear from industry thought leaders. Click subscribe. And if you've been enjoying Market Points, please be sure to rate and review us. You can also find more thought-leading content from Scotiabank on our website at gbm.scotiabank.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at ScotiabankGBM, as well as our LinkedIn showcase page 
under Scotiabank Global Banking and Markets. Please refer to our legal disclosures on our website. I'm Greg White, and thanks for listening.